This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We are back from summer vacation and surprise, surprise, there's a lot of news going on. A compromise suggested in the judicial overhaul, the Netanyahu government picking a fight with the chairman of Yad Vashem and a scientific breakthrough from Israel's Weizmann Institute. We will hear from the lead researcher. It's Unholy. I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy. Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Uh, as you say, we are back. And, you know, when we signed off to have a little summer break, we both made a kind of bet with ourselves, each other, and kind of the listener saying, we thought the chances are we would be back. There would be some huge news development. And each day it would pass where <laughs> I would just take a little guilty peek at the phone and think, is, has something happened? In the end, I think it was Bradley Cooper getting into a row <laughs> about wearing a prosthesis to play Leonard Bernstein that may, you know, that was the closest we got to thinking, wow, this is <laughs> a big unholy story. Maybe we should have an urgent update pod, maybe. Can you imagine the emergency <laughs> Jewish nose episode? Um, Jewface, it was that route. That would have been uh, home turf for us normally, but we thought that didn't require us to uh, smash the glass in case of emergency. <laughs> Uh, and break in. And otherwise, it was sort of relatively, you know, relatively calm. Uh, But in the last few days, a ton of news, like you said, so much stuff going on. I I mean, completely. And while you were vacationing in, I don't know, let let our listeners guess, partying in Ibiza, extreme motorbike ride in the Sahara Desert, bungee jumping in Queenstown, New Zealand. All of this could be something that Jonathan Friedland <laughs> was doing on vacation. Not. But yeah, a lot has been going on really in this week. So much uh, news was packed and we'll get to that in a minute. Can I just say the biggest news I have from my summer vacation? Because Big we, should, news this. Go on. we should tell listeners that when we talk off hours, uh, it's usually uh, me and my gas guzzling, guzzling car and Jonathan on his bike, which means that there is this, I don't know, undertone of uh, <laughs> condescending self-righteousness about him saving the planet and me ruining the planet. So leading up to the big story of the summer, I now have an electric car. So Jonathan, if you want to be as self-righteous as me, wind turbine on your roof, I think would be the I'll have to trump your electric car, (laughs) you're right, with a wind turbine in the garden (laughs) at the very least. Um, No, it is quite true that the smugness of me saying, I'm really sorry, Yoni, I can't hear you, I'm on my bicycle, Uh, it's a little windy, Um, I'll have to park that a bit. Although it's still, uh, you know, pedal power, whereas I think you'll be getting some, you know, energy off the grid. There's some smugness there still to be extracted out of the All is right with the universe then. (laughs) In in the sort of mining, if smugness mining can continue as an industry. Um, Yeah, that's your big news. I thought the big water cooler topic in the Jewish world of the last week or so was not even your purchase of an electric car or the usual news and developments out of the Middle East. I think a lot of conversation that I've been hearing is about the uh, top 10 rated. In fact, for a while, it was the number one rated film on Netflix. You are so not, or is it you're so not invited to my bat mitzvah, which is a storied title. It's an Adam Sandler production in every possible way, because it's basically the Sandler family. Mm-hmm. His daughters are in it and, you know, perform really well. And uh Something tells me I'm not exactly the target audience for this film, um, which I suspect is aimed more at the teenage and perhaps teenage girl demographic. The same was true, incidentally, by the way, probably of Barbie. I don't think I was exactly its uh, target viewer. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the line of duty, I have actually seen both films this Amazing. summer. Amazing. Amazing. You know what I'm thinking to myself of the 19-year-old Jonathan Friedland watching Shoah, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, and now cut uh, fast forward a few years and your movie of choice is Barbie and you're so not invited to my bat mitzvah. The thing that happened in the middle is this podcast started. So I see a connection here. There is there is some sort of trend that can be discerned there. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of argument about the kind of uh, the film. Some people say it's just, you know, they're, they're not their taste, whatever. But the really interesting thing about it 
to me, a lot of people love it, and it's been very well reviewed. The, the the Jewishness is is fascinating to me. There is a lot to talk about there. I think probably in normal times, if it, there wasn't a writer's strike and an actor's strike, we would have loved to have someone come on, because there are so many sort of Jewish points of interest, obviously, in a film with that title. But, you know, it, there are, people are saying it's a really positive, affirmative statement about Jewish life in the sense of the main character, her life revolves around you know, Hebrew school and the bat mitzvah. It's not just materialistic, although it is. There's a huge fuss about the party. There's the social uh, justice stuff that she wants to do, her sort of mitzvah duty. There's a fascinating other angle that one of the most saintly characters in the whole thing, in fact, perhaps the only purely good character, is actually a little Christian boy. Somebody has written a very good piece in the Jewish Chronicle here saying, does that, is that almost supersessionist? theology that the Jews are no longer the good people and they've been overtaken in God's eyes by Christians. A ton of issues in what otherwise might seem to most normal people an entertaining comedy on Netflix. Uh, the Unholy Listener can see a whole other angle, tons of issues there. So I thought um, that was the you know big headline out of the summer until we both got back and uh, uh, the news mountain uh, just sort of loomed over both of us. Yeah, and we will extend our conversation about this uh, film when we can discuss it with one of the people who participated in it. In the meantime, I will say that we, if we had known each other at the time, you were so invited to my bat mitzvah, Jonathan, completely. But let's move on to other news. I love that grammatical construction. That's a very, and it's very gratifying to know that I so was invited. But yes, <laughs> let's uh, dive into what's been happening. It's been a pretty dramatic uh, week. We will remind our listeners that right before summer uh, break, Netanyahu's coalition passed the first uh, sort of um, block in the wall of the judicial overhaul or judicial coup. It is the striking down, revoking of the reasonableness clause. Now, what happened this week, which was pretty dramatic, was that a new compromise deal was put on the table. We were very close to actually reaching a compromise. Why was this different from any other compromise we've heard about, usually from the president's uh, uh, office, because this was not a Herzog compromise. It was a Netanyahu compromise, meaning that it's Netanyahu's people, his attorney and his uh, uh, cabinet secretary, Yossi Fuchs, who were working on this with Herzog's office. The opposition wasn't even a side to it until they sort of had this document and then they started making the calls. So just very briefly, what was on the table, just so we kind of set the stage on this, one was a rewriting of the uh, reasonableness clause that was revoked by the Knesset. Two, very importantly, a freeze to the legislation for a year and a half. And three, the balance in the Judicial Appointments Committee would basically uh, stay the same. I mean, the makeup of the committee, although the coalition will have more power uh, to appoint judges uh, in every instance. This is, Jonathan, if you pause for a second and look back eight months into the past and remember what the Justice Minister Yariv Levine presented as his plan that many in Israel, particularly those who didn't vote for this government, saw as nothing less than a hydrogen bomb being dropped on the judiciary. This, what we are now talking about, what was on the table, I'm not saying it's a capitulation, but it's definitely a call for a ceasefire, a very dramatic call for a ceasefire. The problem, of course, wasn't in the suggestion itself, but in the person who made the suggestion, uh, and let's say it gently, uh, the fact that the prime minister has issues of trustworthiness turned this uh, uh, into something of a problem. And lo and behold, a few minutes after this was leaked to uh, Channel 12's, our correspondent Amit Segal, and published on air, the Likud completely disavowed and said it has nothing to do with this plan. Uh, and basically, you know, at this moment, as it seems, killing it because it leaked and there was a lot of pressure, uh, particularly from the Justice Minister Yariv Levine, who wasn't happy with it. So that disavowal, mm -hmm. does that suggest to you that it was genuine? coming out of Netanyahu, but he encountered resistance from the hardliners, you mentioned Yariv Levin, mm -hmm. or, you know, was this all smoke and mirrors, uh, the kind of trick that people have got used to and has indeed eroded trust in Netanyahu? Tell me, can it be both? I mean, in one sense, I think that uh, overall, I think Netanyahu would probably have wanted this behind him, this whole mess and trying to move forward, he is still rather, I think, worried uh, when he's looking at his tough, the tough opposition. By the way, we're talking here on Thursday. There is uh, a large protest supporting the judicial overhaul planned tonight. But but it's no, there's no question that even the mere appearance of a compromise in this particular timing is good for Netanyahu for two reasons. 
First, he's supposed to meet uh, President Biden, the uh, U.N. General Assembly at the end of this month. So appearing to be someone who wants compromise and even initiates the compromise is not bad. And let me remind you, the Supreme Court in Israel is about to be dealing with the question of uh, the legality of the uh, reasonableness clause. So again, if he's signaling to the whole of the country that he wants a compromise, that changes maybe uh, the hearts and minds of, of the judges themselves. Always the response whenever Netanyahu comes up with anything is to read the small print mm -hmm. because of this lack of trust, as you've said. What did the opponents of the judicial overhaul say about the proposal if they were taking it at face value? In other words, if it really was a genuine move, do you think, from what you've heard from people who have been opposing this for, you know, since the start of the year, do you think they would be placated? by these changes? Because it does, to, on its face, look like a climb down. Mm -hmm. Or would they say, hold on, when you actually read the fine print, it's it's not all that? So in the same way that the coalition is split around this question, the opposition and the protest movement are somewhat in different places. Maybe if this had seemed like a very genuine attempt, you could have heard something from Benny Gantz that says, okay, let's sit and talk about this. Right. I mean, I remind you that even Yair Lapid, who is the head of the opposition, talked about a freeze for a year and a half. It is included in that plan. The protest movement are, are, are in a different place. They immediately almost said, you know, if there's one thing to learn from autocracies around the world is that the leader who's leading this kind of judicial overhaul always wants to appear like it's a legitimate or it has a, a wide consensus. But I do think that if Netanyahu himself had come out and said clearly, which he didn't, I support this. This is my plan that he would have found a partner in Benny Gantz. But Benny Gantz essentially, you know, had this sort of declaration where he said, again, I can't trust you enough to say, let's let's come and talk about this. Especially if you're floating this through a third party, you're not, mm -hmm. as you say, coming on camera and saying it. And also if you're Benny Gantz, because you've been burnt before. Yeah. And, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It would be on him mm -hmm. if he was duped by Netanyahu a second time. Now, I think um, it sounds to me like Netanyahu wants to have it both ways and wants to keep the base on side, so doesn't actually put his name and face to it. But he, even as he wants credit in exactly the quarters you mentioned internationally and with the crucial deciders of the Supreme Court, very interesting to know whether uh, they're buying it or they whether they would by it. But, but the year and a half timeline is interesting to me, partly because he will be getting very close to another election by mm -hmm. then. I mean, close-ish. Uh, and that is kicking it into the long grass. You know, that's kicking the can down the road. Indeed. And and that I think is what Netanyahu uh, does best, is not really deciding, definitely not, you know, declaring what his decisions are, but basically to keep on rolling this story and, and trying to survive politically uh, in the interim. But this is definitely when you ask, you know, what the coalition wants, what part of it, if, if you would ask the ultra-Orthodox, they would tell you, we don't want any of this. Forget it. I mean, let, let's just get the exemption for military service. And that's what we want. The rest could be uh, left behind. So there are definitely parts of the coalition really wanted this compromise. Right now, it does look like it's dead in the water, but you you really can't uh, know in this, in this region. The international dimension of this is interesting because, and we talked about it early on uh, on the podcast, that this is connected with what is a huge geopolitical issue and that is the appetite for the Biden administration to get some kind of breakthrough. It will be a big foreign policy win for them if they get it as they go into an election year. And that is in the form of a Saudi-Israeli normalization deal. Donald Trump got his Abraham Accords with the relatively small Gulf states and Israel, you know, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. It would be a massive trophy for Joe Biden if he could get, uh, you know, Saudi and Israel, Saudi Arabia and Israel, who've long had cooperation covertly behind the scenes, especially in the areas of intelligence, to on camera shake hands and sign a document. The reason why this has been got bundled up with judicial reform is it's obviously quite difficult for the Saudi, for the, uh, for MBS to shake hands with Netanyahu as long as there is no progress or even a political horizon with the Palestinians. And therefore, the Saudis would demand some, you know, gesture from Israel on the Palestinian question. And it was always thought any compromise 
on that that would be demanded by the Saudis would be too much for, for not necessarily for Netanyahu himself, although maybe, but certainly for his coalition partners, and that could unravel the whole thing and stop judicial reform in its track. So it's amazing these two, you know, one, a domestic legal issue intertwined with this big geopolitical issue. To what extent do you think even this apparently dead on arrival compromise package is connected with that in the sense of the Joe Biden White House saying to Netanyahu, you've got to close down that whole thing if we're to move forward with the Saudis? I think so. I think, it, again, more than anything was a signal to the outside world and particularly to the Joe Biden White House saying, look, I really want this compromise. Look at what I've suggested. I suggested a, 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 you know, a year and a half freeze on this. And again, look, the Saudi question, the deus ex machina of this whole uh, narrative is something that, um, that everyone in Israel is talking about. Right. And not only in connection to this uh, judicial overhaul, but in the makeup of the government, because what you are hearing from the Israeli sources in the government is something like, oh, whatever the concessions are to the Palestinians, the, the government will still be able to to stay together. I'm not sure uh, that's actually uh, the reality. By the way, just I don't want to sound too cynical, but I think that the it would be a stretch to say that the Saudis care deeply about the Palestinian plight. I think that they need it in the agreement so that it will appear like they do. I think Democrats in Congress, a lot of them really do. And it's a lot to placate them and not only uh, the Saudis, whatever the clause uh, relating to the Palestinian will be in a future deal. We don't know that yet. You know, incidentally, I mean, it's just as a sort of uh, in parentheses, but Noticeable that former head of the Mossad intelligence agency this week, Tamir Pardo, appointed initially, actually in 2011, by Netanyahu himself, adding to that chorus of voices, including, you know, Israeli human rights groups, international human rights groups, who are putting the A word, the apartheid label on Israel's occupation of the West Bank. Tamir Pardo now with all the clout of a former head of Mossad saying, quote, there is an apartheid state here uh, in a territory where two peoples or two people are judged under two legal systems. That is an apartheid state. Obviously, uh, Likud of Slam Pardo and others. The point in a way of mentioning it is just it adds, you know, weight and credibility to those on Joe Biden's left who will be saying, you cannot just act as if it's business as usual with Israel. You need something. Can I try and connect all the dots of this conversation? That's going to be a risky business, but I'm going to try and connect everything we said so far. Okay. Bear with me here. For years, the Israeli, even the Israeli left and center left for sure, has been treating the Palestinian issue as if it's on the dark side of the moon, right? It is a problem, but we don't know how to deal with it and we will eventually solve it. The sort of epitome of this is Ehud Barak, the last prime minister from the left, saying after Camp David failed, there is no partner. The Palestinian people are not a partner for peace. Um, so what we're seeing now is a shift. What happened now? There are two things going on. One is that the Israeli government itself is saying things, I mean, forget even forget Tamir Pardo, although I agree that it's important particularly to the outside world, what he thinks. But listen to what the Israeli government itself is saying. Betalus Smotich is saying the military should bomb Palestinian village Khawara. Amichai Aliyah of Ben Gvir's party is saying the West Bank is a prison. He doesn't seem to be bothered by it, but that's what he's saying. Ben Gvir himself is saying my right to life takes precedent over Arabs' freedom of movement. He said it in our studio. So when this is, this is the government telling not only the world, but telling Israelis what their plans are for this problem. Now think of Israelis who for years have been in the military, have served under all of these governments, are reserve forces, and they hear that this is the plan. Now they're beginning to ask themselves questions about where this government is heading. When you add to that the judicial overhaul, that means that if Israel's judiciary is less independent and these reservists might be tried in international tribunals because Israel's judiciary is no longer independent, again, these people are more and more asking themselves, what what are they doing here? And this judicial overhaul is opening up all of these large questions. Of course, the question of exemption from military service given to the ultra-Orthodox. What we're seeing here is sort of an opening up of this whole issue. It's tied to the judicial overhaul, but it's, of course, more. It goes beyond that. Re really interesting to hear you say all that, because that is, of course, what the small, relatively small 
component wing of the protest movement have been saying and they are small you know they are very small when i went to the protest there is that you know block who are against the occupation they stand kind of separately they are not with the huge mass uh, or rather with them but they, they don't include the whole mass of protesters who've been saying occupation and democracy cannot exist side by side you know if you've got a problem with what's happening to our democracy you need to wake up to action on that front. And that was a relatively marginal position at first. And in a way, the implication of what you've just said is that the once these issues do get opened up, then people do start thinking about them. And we should also mention the point, and people who saw that, I thought, outstanding documentary, The Gatekeepers, will know this. Often the people with the most, as it were, if you were outside, you know, left of centre, leftist views of these uh, security questions are the security establishment themselves in Israel. I think that's a, a, a jolt for people outside Israel because here in Britain, for example, you know the old generals and military are regarded as these very stuffy right-wing establishment. And in the US figures. too, yeah, and and perhaps in the US too. And there it is in in Israel where it's actually the an echo for what would be a left-wing talking point in Europe. You know, saying that there's an apartheid set up in the West Bank. Um, there, it finds an echo in none less than the former head of the Mossad. If you saw that movie, Gatekeepers, you'll know Tamir Pardo is hardly out of step. There's quite a few former intelligence chiefs who similarly denounce the status quo. Uh, but fascinating, the idea this is all being opened up. And perhaps yet another reason why Netanyahu might want to try and get the genie back in the bottle and say, can we all you know, put this on hold for 18 months? Because this has unleashed some demons yeah. that are very difficult for him. Okay, I think we should maybe talk about something totally different. It's not that often that uh, news out of Israel leads uh, the BBC and news organizations worldwide. It's even rarer that when it does, that news isn't about conflict or about politics. Uh, uh, But this week, that did happen. A story out of Israel was leading BBC News on Wednesday, and it was about science. It was about a breakthrough from scientists uh, whose uh, senior figure is at the Weizmann Institute. I'm not even going to really attempt to explain it, um, but we are thrilled that joining us on Unholy is Professor Jacob Hanna or Jakub Hanna from the Weizmann Institute. Uh, Welcome to Unholy. Thank you, and uh, happy to be here. No, we are delighted. So we should be clear, just in case people have got the wrong end of the stick from these headlines. You haven't just made a human baby without no. sperm, egg, or a womb. You've made a model of an embryo. But as I understand it, you took, and forgive my layperson's understanding no here, but you took key stem cells, you know, human stem cells, you used chemicals, which then sort of coaxed them, encouraged them into becoming the four types of cells that are found in the earliest stages of a human embryo. And then, and this is the bit that's I think got huge attention, they organize themselves, they spontaneously form themselves into an embryo-like structure. And that's the big breakthrough, as I understand it. But that, that notion of them organizing themselves and forming into this embryo-like structure, is that what you and your colleagues expected to happen? Uh, first, Jeff, you, you explained this probably better than me. <laughs> um, and yes, that is the goal because, uh, you know, this research is, has been going on for very long. And as almost most research in my field, things start with the mice. And, and last year we published that we can do that in mouse. We can really the same concept with some modifications. Uh, There we reached uh, day eight and a half out of 20 uh, days of pregnancy. You know, in parallel, we were going to, of course, wanted to do this with human uh, stem cells, which was really the the final stage because that it meets, you know, we're trying to make a system that answers our goals, which I'll explain later. But yes, we we start with, with stem cells, early stem cells. And we've been working on the concept of what does, um, when we grow stem cells in the dish, to what state in development they equate? And uh, what we've made before is something called naive stem cells, really that they are corresponding to the earliest days in development, which they have unlimited potential, which means they can also make the placenta and the yolk sac, the surrounding tissues. Mm-hmm. Because we know that these surrounding tissues are not only about protecting or nurture the embryo early, that they also dictate specification development. Mm-hmm. So because we saw in the dish that the human naive cells can do that, and because of our success in mice, 
we said, let's try to do this with the human stem cells. Mm -hmm. um, and I really believe that it would, let's say, put it, things are conserved overall in pluripotency between mouse and humans. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can never be sure until you really do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were, of course, excited when it started working and so forth. I have to ask, I mean, first of all, how does this um, make our all of our lives better? I mean, what are the ways that this surprise, as you call it, and this breakthrough really improves our lives? And, and I, I want to also pause on the fact that it stops at day 14. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Mm -hmm. Yes, very important. So I would just state, you know, why on earth are we doing this? <laughs> uh, and, and really, the, the, it's just not about, you know, making flashy headlines. We have a big challenge. Human embryo makes its organs between week two and week five. Mm -hmm. So these four weeks of drama luckily happen very fast and very early where uh, 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 really you move from a stem cell ball into something very uh, complicated that anybody on the street would you'd show the image and tell you, yeah, looks like an embryo. And the rest of pregnancy is uh, growth, which is important, but less complex. And um, we don't really know in human beings exactly what does this look like. We have atlases from the 60s for when they collected like tissues and abortions. They probably would have never got ethical approvals to this today. Mm -hmm. So this is these are snapshots, but we don't, we need in-depth knowledge, really like you could think of like, a, I want to see a, like a video of every second where every cell moves, where it goes. So we don't have understanding. And we want to have that understanding because we want to, uh, most developmental defects happen during this window, even if they're detected earlier. Mm -hmm. A lot of pregnancy failures, most of them happen very early on. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that this critical window, I would say it's absolutely impossible to study in humans. It's embryo small, justified ethical limitation. Actually, women mostly don't know they're pregnant by these stages. So you really, you know, we, as we said, we have sometimes one sample here, one sample there as a field, and we try, you know, we're desperate, we try to learn from them. But to study development, you need thousands, hundreds of thousands of samples. Mm -hmm. And that's why, um, particularly in humans, and I would say even, even in non-human primates, um, we, this method basically trying to make a model to bypass this obstacle. And really the emphasis on model uh, because we're, we're so desperate that, you know, if we, we want at least, you know, we have something to work and it will be great. And I would say it, it has turned out better than we had hoped for. But that is the idea. And that's why we're trying to make a model embryo, which is not exact, but it is very, very similar uh, to human embryo in terms of structure, in terms of dynamics, um, similar in the mouse as well. Mm -hmm. And and the reason, as I said, yes, there is biomedical application, what I meant, developmental defects, learning how differentiation happens. But I also want to say I never underestimate our basic knowledge. I mean, we're human beings, it's 2023. I think we need to know how we develop in the first five weeks. Although I am sure this leads to... Um, applied uh, benefits and technologies. But I would even say, even let's worst case scenario, even not, I think we, we must have that knowledge as, as modern society and that, that really is curious about things. So you made the case for the research there really well, but you did mention the ethical yes. dimension. Yes. And I note, noticed that you're very careful to say model, it's not an actual human being. But how you regard this yourself, you write as this paper in Nature, you're credited as Jacob Hanna. Uh -huh. But you mentioned there at the start that you're also to your family, Yakub Hanna, you're from an Arab Christian family. I don't know if you personally are religious or not. I know there's some scientists who are religious and have faith. But when people talk about scientists playing God, isn't what you've just done what exactly what they mean? So you asked a very... Long question, which is where I'll start. I'll start from the end. I'm a very um, kind of mellow guy. I, 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 you know, big words of even like something. Is this like the creation? Is this like the atom or like playing? Uh, you know, I, I really can't answer it. Even yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm also I'm not anti-religion. And in the end, we're looking at biology. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually quote you one of my <laughs> original neighbors uh, in in the village. He's very high up. Um, minister in Israel. And every time I actually get a paper, he calls me and congratulates me. And I, at the, you know, the third time, I you know, thought, maybe he doesn't understand this, or you'd expect him. Then I asked him, he knew everything. And in his opinion, not that he represents a large, he said, well, God created stem cells, and he wanted you to use them for beneficial stuff. 
I was so just to give an example that you can have so many sorts of opinions. But going back to the ethics, of course, we're um, of course we've been already thinking about it as a field. So I call them embryo models at the moment because we do see differences. And for example, in the mouse, as I told you, it can, we can grow up so far 8.5 mm-hmm. because it has these defects. I mean, you know, they, they culminate into a problem that they cannot be go beyond eight and a half. But for the sake of ethic arguments, I always actually try to take the extreme scenarios. And maybe you could say these gaps are going to narrow and maybe the, you're going to get, um, get limited. So, mm-hmm. so then you start talking about ethics. So first of all, I, I don't think our goal is to really make, replace pregnancy and grow these embryo models for like nine months. So this one, I don't think it's possible in humans at all. It's nine months. It's too big. If you compare it to the mouse, which is very small, we can barely do it for 10 days. In the end, you know, uterus is complicated and so forth. So at least it's really not realistic at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think it will after that. Another issue that we have also to emphasize that although it's illegal already in all countries to take any bunch of stem cells and put inside the uterus of any mammalian, but actually, even if somebody wanted to break the law, this biologically can never succeed. Mm-hmm. Why? Because even if we talk about now natural embryos, in all mammalians, implantation can succeed only until day six in humans, which is 64 cell stage. Mm-hmm. Two days later, three days later, four days later, in all mammalians, if you put it inside the uterus, it doesn't work. It's just too late. It never implants. So even if somebody wanted to break the law, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. So that is one thing. And then um, the question, there are a lot of discussions about, you know, embryo-based research, you know, just now normal embryos take out of the uterus or surplus from therapies. And, you know, international society guidelines in different countries have laws. I think the question here, indeed, is not that models need their kind of own regulation. The question is simple. When does an embryo model become qualified to be called an embryo? And then you know, you have the regulation, the same regulation applying. Mm. And, and as you said, I think there is a lot of, when we talk about ethics, uh, so although now, as I said, we're working with very early stages, I don't, you know, they don't, they don't have organs, they have very, later will have very basic organs, there is no pain. And now again, I'm assuming it's exactly like an embryo. And when I look in then at, at ethics, I don't look at it as black and white uh, question. I think in the end, is the benefit outweighs the cost, which the cost in this case is ethics. So the scenario we're having at the moment, I would say, it's more about imagine an adult guy, he has leukemia, he cannot find a matching bone marrow donor. Imagine a woman who is after chemotherapy, she is cured from cancer, but she has absolutely no oocytes residual. Does he or she have the right as adults to give their informed consent to take a skin cell from them turn it all the way back, and then use our method to make embryo models. And at day 35, you have excellent hematopoietic progenitors for transplantation. At day 60, you have excellent oocytes that can be used for fertility from them. Is that justified or not? Is that ethical or not? And I actually want to say even the way and many things, I don't have an answer. I mean, I think, you know, you would assume like scientists already know what's ethical and we just want to convince us. No, actually, we want to also hear back from society. And that's why we do a lot of these interviews. But we want the society on to do this based on being fully informed mm-hmm. and not based on baseless kind of uh, scare or, God forbid, another, you know, uh, George Bush, the father, really making uh, propaganda, political propaganda on this. I mean, if the society, after hearing and knowing all the facts, decides, no, that's not ethical, I'm personally completely fine with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we need to explain very well what is that, why is this done? And because usually people's imaginations and, you know, I love sci-fi, you things about the matrix and uh, people are going to steal a hair from me and make a, um, an embryo, I mean, that reminds me a little, you know, in the beginning of the IVF, mm-hmm. you know, 80s, people were like, oh, somebody's going to steal the sperm bank and do things. So that doesn't happen. Yes. And the last part of my long answer is just, in the end, in science, any field of science had a lot of ethical problems. Nuclear physics is very important for energy and space. Just because someone can make a nuclear bomb, you don't shut the door on this. There's a lot of uh, benefit. And trust me, a nuclear bomb is more dangerous than anything of what I said combined. Mm -hmm. Same with viruses. You can very easily make a dangerous virus. Do we stop viral research? Look how much it's beneficial. Mm -hmm. AI, do we shut the door? Of course, it's benefits. And 
I think that the, the method is really going carefully, discussing it early, discussing with the public early that they don't, um, and prepare for the worst or most extreme scenario on. Uh, but I really, at the moment, I don't think that, you know, that we should sound an alarm or, you know, raise the red flag that, that something, you know, really, we're, we're far from there. But it's very important these discussions are coming up and the entire field has been for the last three years, uh, whether it's natural embryo or embryo models really discussing this. And in the end, we should accept different societies will have different limits on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you're trying to make a universal uh, standard is possible, really. So I'm going to, so, okay, you convinced us that the model embryo will not grow up to be an angry teenager and hate its non-existent parents. That will not happen. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm convinced that. So I do still want to realize how, I mean, obviously I assume there are teams everywhere, or not everywhere, but there are a lot of teams working on this breakthrough. How is it that you succeeded in this competition? I want to say, again, it's not... It's often talked about competition and like many labs are like just who's to be first. I think many times who's really first is, is overhyped because in the end, science is a meritocracy. I think which really model works. I think that's what wins in the end. Um, and, you know, we, we've also stand on the really shoulders of giants before us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for us, we're, got, we're a bit lucky. Um, it's not that we had like from the beginning, I'm going to work now for 10 years and reach that goal. Mm-hmm. We've been working in originally about naive stem cells, what are these naive stem cells that are early on? We were just curious. We didn't think really about biomedical applications. But once we started seeing things and uh, working on them, and we saw some differences, we realized that we also need to be looking more at the early embryo. Mm-hmm. And we saw limitation, we must grow it outside the uterus in mouse to really learn more about it. And as we went in the end, we really thought, well, can these stem cells become embryos? And really, actually, the name uh, now, this field has a name that's called stembryology, <laughs> uh, which I really think it's uh, valid. And I'm it really actually excite me because I had like these two arms of research and really from stem cells to the embryo, and then they just merged. Um, so in the end, you know, we were poised on a lot of fronts because we've been working on human naive pluripotency. We've been working on building these incubators to grow mouse embryos outside. And we gained a lot of knowledge. And, and we've in the middle, we didn't talk, not published yet. It's like on rabbits because it's a, it has similar development to humans. So that kind of thing happens and some luck and really luck in um, do finding donors who were able to fund us because this is extremely expensive. I mean, I really... I, I have no idea how I did it in terms of finances, uh, but somehow <laughs> the Wiseman and its donor really we 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 are where we are. But I want to emphasize: I don't feel like you know, like oh, this is the achievement, and the rest is like uh, solved. It's just so much work to do. We have actually more questions than we when we started. We have a lot to work on. So I uh, I think it's great, and this is obviously from the topics we discussed. There's. This is much bigger than one lab, you know, it's a whole kind of new niche and, and, and a lot of labs need to intervene and that have better expertise on things and different ideas, different questions. So exciting times, I would say. Um, you probably get the impression, and if you do, you're right, that Yonit uh, and I talk about politics a bit more than we talk <laughs> about even stembryology. Um, so forgive me getting a political angle on this, but I did it. sort of touch on it before, but I wonder... Uh, whether any of this actually matters to you, or may- maybe it doesn't because it's just purely about the science. But I know there was a researcher, I think, from Gaza involved in your project. Um, how significant f- was this other fact that this project was led by you, an Arab citizen of Israel? You know, this is a big discussion all the time around the world about uh, the extent to which, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel are full participants in the society and so on. Your Your name has gone around the world this week. I mean, does... Does any of that matter to you or for you, it's all about the science? I want to say when I work on on the science, it's really all about the science. But of course, uh, my life is heavily influenced by by the politics. Uh, first, based by, you know, thinking the awful uh, occupation that is go- has been going on for way, way too long. Uh, I'm, you know, one of the lucky Palestinians who are you know, has an Israeli passport, you know, many people don't understand the difference, but you do. And yes, you know, we experienced, I experienced this difficulty. Um, and, and, you know, my, you know, I'm also actually, you know, on Twitter, I'm, I'm quite political in my opinions about, about this. And it, I'm, I'm sure I lost a grant or two or an award or two because, uh, and I know there've been like once or twice, like 
bad emails circulated through entire Israel science community about, uh, you know, I said something in, in the media that is political or something like that. But I want to say that um, for me, um, like my political views really is, uh, you know, I don't care if it's one country, it's two countries, bring the British mandates, maybe we'll have better grants. Uh, really, I just, but I, it needs to be a fair solution. I don't think it, it, it can continue like this. I mean, it's just uh, uh, that way. Maybe, you know, my, my, my background uh, as a minority, I don't know this, but I really also like, as you said, my team has like from Luxembourg, from Mexico, two from Turkey, one from Gaza, one from Ramallah. Two, we could, we laugh at it, conventional Israelis, one, <laughs> one Israeli. But it's not that I, I, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not intimate or I don't have prejudice or something. I'm, you know, I just like, I like that mix in general. Uh, and I think it should be more, um, on that way. So yes, there is, uh, there is, and I'm, I'm a, per- a person also in science who <laughs> expresses his opinions. I, um, that also kind of, I, uh, you know, I pay for a price for it, but, um, that is who I am. I'm never going to hold my thought back. Mm. Well, let us hope that we just have more of these discussions in general and have more um, of this kind of news uh, to talk about. But we really appreciate your time today. Um, Professor Jacob Yakub Khanna, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you really for uh, giving attention to this research. That's the most important. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really brilliant. And congratulations. Thank you. We'll have you on when you get your Nobel Prize. (laughs) Yeah, we do. We want a first exclusive when you get the Nobel. That's true. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. And keep up the the great work. Yakub, thank you very much indeed. As we said, a quite rare example of Israel making the news for all the right reasons, positive uh, story in science, or even with the kind of ethical issues we talked about with the extremely impressive uh, prof, Yakub Hanna. Meanwhile, Israel has been making news internationally for rather less benign reasons. This story really fascinates me. It's the attempt to remove the head of Yad Vashem, Dani Dayan, who's uh, currently the chair of the you know, museum, the memorial, really the most important Holocaust institution, I would say, really in the world. The government want him out. And this is, a, on its face, a surprise because Danny Diane is a figure of the right. He's a former chair of Yeshar, the Settlers uh, Council. Uh, so he's himself a, you know, West Bank settler. He comes from the political right. And yet he has fallen out of favor with Netanyahu and his job is on the line. I noticed that the Holocaust Museum in Washington, which would really be Yad Vashem's, you know, only rival as a, as a global institution of Holocaust memory has uh, leapt to his defense and said, uh, you know, he should stay in his post. You're there. Tell us, talk us through what is the, <laughs> maybe the official and what we think is the unofficial reason why Diane has a sort of sword over his head. As you said, uh, Danny Dayan used to be uh, Netanyahu's. Remember, Netanyahu wanted to make him ambassador to Brazil. Uh, Brazil didn't want to appoint him because of his political activity uh, vis-a-vis the settlements. So Netanyahu, uh, so to speak, kicked him upstairs and made him consul general in New York, where he was very well respected by everybody. But then he made the political mistake of not supporting Netanyahu, but rather supporting Gidon Saar, who became Netanyahu's uh, rival. So that, you know, erased him in Netanyahu's book. And what many people have been saying this week is essentially Netanyahu is trying to get rid of any appointment that is Gidon Saar's, by the way, the most important appointment made by Gidon Saar as Minister of Justice is, of course, Attorney General Gali Baharav Miara. But back to uh, Dani Dayan, Uh, the story that we reported on uh, Channel 12, in case I wasn't plugging my channel enough in this episode was first of all that there that he wanted to oust him and then the reason came out saying that Sar Netanyahu who we know is quite influential in some of the decisions um made uh was very upset that Dani Dayan had asked a singer named Keren Peles very talented singer in Israel to sing in one of the ceremonies in Yad Vashem after she had been very clearly linked to the anti-government protests so that um you know put upset uh, the Netanyahu family to the extent that they decided to um, fire him. Look, this is really the the, the um, response from around the world in support of Dani Dayan in this story has been quite incredible. I would say at this point, my prediction would be that he is probably in the safest position 
of anyone in Israel, I don't think Netanyahu would would try and and, and do anything now. That is just my guess. The, the story about the disapproval mm-hmm. of him because he had invited a singer who had been disobliging about the royal couple, as it were, is so sort of Ceausescu to me. You know, the idea of the leader who must not incur his displeasure. And just by inviting at a Holocaust memorial event, a woman who has once taken a stand, who's joined the protest, and know that, you know, the um, the prime minister's wife t- takes against her. I mean, it's just, to me, seems, um, you know, either Ceausescu or certainly Orbanist. And in fact, that is relevant to mention uh, Orban because part of the speculation for why Diane has uh, earned disapproval, besides the personal slight, is that he has not gone along with the cozying up by the Netanyahu government to these governments of the far right in Central and Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe too, um, giving them a sort of clean bill of health on uh, even parties with a history of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, giving them a clean bill of health so long as they make the right noises on Israel and on settlements. That This is the kind of diplomatic deal that Netanyahu has been, uh, and his foreign minister, Eli Cohen, have been doing. For example, one, one, you know, Eli Cohen recently decided to end Israel's boycott of a far-right Romanian party. And it's this kind of trade-off, which has existed for a while, where so long as you make the right noises on Israel and occupation, you can have erased your uh, past record of Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. And Danny Dayan has not really gone along with that, that he has given instead backing to the historians and the experts inside Yad Vashem, Mm -hmm. who are very adamant that you cannot legitimize these far-right European parties in all kinds of places, you know, Sweden and Finland, where we've mentioned some of the other places in Eastern Europe. You cannot do that unless you uh, are disavowing and have made the right shift and rid yourself of the past record of Holocaust denial. And Danny Diane has done the right thing and sided with the historians against the politicians. And that too, it seems, has angered King Bibi. And I think that is, I think that is really appalling, even if you get past the sort of personal vanity of slighting the leader. You know, making Holocaust memory a political and diplomatic football this way, it's not a new trend, it's been happening, is appalling and reprehensible. And Danny Diane deserves support for, for not going along with it. We just we should say that officially Sarah Netanyahu, on record, which is very rare for her, did deny the accusation that it has anything to do with her, anything to do with Karen Pellis, the singer. She said that she had nothing to do with any of this. And of course, we take that wholly at face value. Uh, entirely unrelated, we have chutzpah awards to hand out, and of course, mensch. Now, we did say that the news was not exactly bursting while we were away, but the chutzpah world, Man. my gosh, that was <laughs> abundant. This is a crowded field. Oh, so crowded. I don't know where to begin. Like, we were cons- obviously considering Elon Musk threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League, blaming them Right, blaming the Jews. I'm just trying to make it pretty clear for uh, Twitter, and that's now called X's revenue drop. That is a very firm candidate, I have to say. Do you want to suggest anyone else before I say who I think should deserve, well, I, deserve the chutzpah war? I wanted to give a little shout out to Ilan Stavans, if that is the right way to pronounce his name, author of a much-discussed op-ed in the New York Times about Yiddish. Uh, headline, Yiddish is having a moment, and and it definitely is, so that's all good. Uh, but there were a couple of lines there which have got people very exercised, one in which he says that Yiddish is now essentially confined to ultra-Orthodox Jews, and they aren't multilingual, he says, as secular Yiddish speakers always were. They only speak uh, the one language, he says. Uh, I've had responses from uh, my ultra-Orthodox neighbours here pointing out that their children, uh, even as young as three or four, speak three languages. They speak Yiddish, they speak Hebrew, they speak English, and uh, there's some pushback on that. And then people equally did not much like the writer's reference to Hebrew, suggesting that the in, in, in his piece he says, Hebrew is spoken by about nine million people around the world. For some, the language symbolizes far-right Israeli militarism. Um, 
Uh, your face wow. is, is, is speaking volumes. Uh, your your face definitely speaks several languages, Yoni. And right now it's saying, what? Um, yeah, this is the idea that, you know, the whole language is somehow implicated in the policies of, you know, some on the political spectrum. I think that's also a bit of a stretch. And so I think a little chutzpah mention uh, for that piece, but all of them bow as nothing before our eventual winner. Drum roll. It will be Miri Regev, transportation minister here in Israel. For a story that broke this week, there was an argument between her driver uh, and one of Defense Minister uh, Yoav Gallant's security guards. Her her driver refused to identify himself entering into a military base, and the Secretary of Defense was there. He was stopped by one of uh, Gallant's guards and then decided to drive over his leg. Now, this was just an incident. And of course, after that, uh, Miri Regev herself stepped out and argued with the uh, Shin Bet agents. She said that they also pushed her. All this could have been just a very, very small news story if it wasn't for the video gone viral of her sitting inside the car. After all this was over, she was asked to stay there for a while because of the investigation. Obviously, someone running over a security guard of the defense minister is something to be investigated. And then she is telling her driver, just go, just drive. All of this is recorded. And he's saying to her, I'm going to run over some people if I just drive. She says, just do it. And that went quite viral in Israel. I think what takes us to the next level, chutzpah-wise, is the fact that her official title includes Minister for <laughs> Road Safety. So you're saying irony just got run over. That is essentially what you're saying. Irony is roadkill <laughs> after this story. The Minister for Road Safety. She took her job very tried. seriously. Yeah, she was definitely um, exploring the full range of implications of road safety there. No, a worthy winner, um, Chutzpah. And uh, obviously, we have to hand out a prize for Mensch. And as so often, um, the Mensch winner is a, a much more feel-good story. And yet again, it refers to somebody who sits around the ministerial table with the yeah. Minister for Road Safety, but took his responsibilities and duties Rather more serious. Right. And he was part of the story I just uh, told. And whatever you think of Defense Minister Gallant, either you support him or not, or you think his ideology of staying in the government and trying to uh, combat the judicial overhaul from within is the right move or the wrong move, whatever you think of him. I think this is beyond controversy what he did this week. Essentially, talked a man out of killing himself. It happened in Zichon Yaakov in the northern part of Israel. The man uh, standing on the ledge saying he was going to jump unless he talks to the Minister of Defense. And the Minister of Defense actually gets on the call and talks to the man and talks him out uh, uh, down from the ledge of a very bad idea and, and manages to save him his life. This is a very busy man, right? Israel has a lot of security-related issues and challenges. He still found the time to talk to this man and talk him out of it. And, uh, you know, I think he does, does deserve the Mensch Award of the Week. I think so, too. I think the idea of a man called Gallant um, <laughs> showing the uh, bravery, and obviously he must have had the emotional intelligence because uh, I mean what a uh, hideous situation to be in where you know your words are being weighed by someone contemplating taking their own life and he obviously found the right words because the man did uh, come down off that ledge and uh, we applaud it to Yoav Gallant for handling a very, very um, demanding situation, obviously well. So a worthy winner for Mensch, uh, a worthy winner for Chutzpah. Do we picture them sitting around the cabinet table showing their two awards to each other, Miri Regev and Yoav Gallant, saying, we both got one this week? I don't know. I, I kind of like that image. I don't know if it could ever transpire. I like it. I like it. I like the I image I know they too. both listen to us. Oh, well, that's good. It's been a bumper episode. There has been a lot to catch up with. We will be back with you, obviously, next week um, in between. If you want to tell us what you think, Unholy Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. And of course, tell your friends. And um, always, we should mention again, rating and reviewing. Nice for us, but also really helps the podcast get seen by more podcast users. So do that on whichever platform you use for listening. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, and Rom Atik. And we're back next week. We will. We are. We'll see you then.
This podcast is brought to you by Cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.